The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I, I have to tell you something and I don't know how to break it. Oh, Fields. Why? Is something the matter? Am I, am I, have you seen x-rays of me? Uh, <laughs> what? I saw x-rays of you. <laughs> I, I failed to see the universe. <laughs> oh, you didn't see the x-rays. <laughs> What? Tell me what's the matter. No, nothing. I'm, I just, I'm white. I mean, my, you know, know when your heart beats? I know. When my I know, heart is beating? I know. I just don't think we should see each other anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? I'm sorry. Why? What's the matter? There's just something missing for me, and I don't know what. I what don't do you know mean, what something? It is. Something missing from me? Yes. What do you mean? Like what? Like. What? like Can you say what is missing from me? Well, no, maybe if you could guess a few things, I could try. Well, what do you uh, mean? Can you say something? Something's tell me? missing. Well, I don't what? know I mean, what is it, it is. Is it personality or looks or something well, like that? Well, no. Am I not smart enough? No. I mean, is that what you're saying? Because I'm not... No. Well, what? You mean, is, you mean that it is... It has nothing to do with height or anything no, like that, No, it has right? nothing to do with nothing the fact that you're short, and it has cavities? nothing to do with the fact that you're not bright cavities? enough. And it has nothing to do with the fact that your teeth are in bad shape. So what then? What could it possibly... I don't understand. Has it got it to has, do with... Uh, well, it's not my personality. It has nothing... No. Are you, do you have fun when you're with me? No. I mean, but it's not that. I mean, it's not that I don't have fun with you when I'm with you. So, well, I mean, we laugh. Like, we spend day, you know. We yeah. Don't tell me that we haven't laughed. No, it's we've not that we laugh. I mean, we laughed laugh laugh. a lot. We've I've laughed a lot. Certainly, I laugh a lot. Well, I, mean, I can't put you don't my laugh, finger I on quite what and it I'm is. just left laugh. It's something's missing, that's all. Just, well, what's uh, missing? Can you well, be specific? I mean, is it the way I do? Well, where do you want it to go? I mean, it's well, got... where could we get it to go? Well, that's not... I don't know. I love you. I mean, that's when then if I love you and you love me, that's... Uh, no, that's uh, and it's spirit. not because I don't love you. I, then you love me? No, I don't. That's what I mean. You, but you, that's not that's... the reason why. Just something is missing. I need a very it's strong communication, man. right? Well, I'm I need strong. a leader. I'm a leader. I'm perfect. I have all the qualities of leadership. But don't you understand? I'm interested in you... so many vital political things. Me too. So many... Me too. But I'm that not going to go and work with pygmies in Africa. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 10th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome to the show today where I guess our overarching theme would be the role of the state in family matters. And now this is an issue that I know very little about. And so I'm sort of left out hanging here on a limb and depending on a few higher higher profile and more knowledgeable um, expertise on this than what I know myself. And I've certainly been learning a lot about how family law actually works. I've heard about equal parenting, Bill C-422, and an an interesting syndrome called parental alienation syndrome, which we'll be hearing about more later on today. I will be joined later in the last half of the show by National Post columnist Barbara Kay to discuss parental alienation and the role of the state and family matters in more general terms. And in the first half of the show... I am joined by none other than Chris Titus, who is co-president of the Canadian Equal Parenting Council. Chris, are you there? I am, Bob. Well, welcome to the show and welcome to London. 
Thanks for having me. Now, I understand you're going to be um, sort of being the, the host and MC of, a, of an event coming up here in London this September 15th. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's... Uh, yeah, it's put on by, uh, what I've got here is Not All Dads Are Deadbeats, presents a parental alienation symposium. It's at the Wolf Performance Hall, which is, of course is located inside the Central Library. At a good time, right after supper, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday the 15th, and you'll be hearing from Toronto family lawyer Jean Coleman, author and nurse Molly Murphy, and founder and past president of the Parental Alienation Awareness Organization, Sarvi Emo, and it's $10 a ticket. You can get special rates if requested and to find out more about tickets you email nadadsinfo at gmail.com and um, so if you want to find out more about that. So tell us a little bit about um, you know, you and I talked earlier Oh yes we did. And of course you know when relationships end, particularly a marriage that includes dependent children and the issue of custody becomes you know number one concern with regard to those children and uh, of course unfortunately what we see is that what often happens right after a relationship breaks down is a lot of emotional turmoil on the part of both parents and of course the kids get caught between a rock and a hard place more or less if, if you want to put it that way. Well, the kids that are also going through emotional turmoil are sure. dealing with now, parents' now, turmoil. Now, um, with your regard to your role and you know with the Canadian Equal Parenting Council and equal parenting and the bill itself, we'll get to that a little later. But I thought first we'd do uh, sort of a begin with an overview of how family law actually works. What is it most people seem to be completely unaware of? Uh, with regard to the status of their marriage and custody of their children under the law. You brought some interesting things to mind yesterday when we talked. Yeah, well, it is. It's a very confusing time uh, for a lot of parents as well because it throws them into the legal system. And we all have, you know, a preconceived notion that the legal system, everything is based on beyond a reasonable doubt. Unfortunately, in family law, that's not the standard that's used. Family law courts are actually cross-jurisdictional courts. They're made up of not only common law, but civil law. And common law means that most of the decisions that are made through those courts are going to heavily depend on um, precedents that have already been set. Our current system right now has a long-standing precedent. Um, You know, traditionally, mums have cared for the children. So that is a very, very heavy factor in a lot of the decisions that we see come out of family court. A lot of people don't understand that. And the balance or, or the actual... Um, Has, hasn't, hasn't the, you know, the, 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 the feminist revolution at least or our whole changes in attitude socially already changed that? I mean, since the pill came out, hasn't, you'd think things would have changed. Well, I would say that things actually changed about 25 years ago, but that's probably how far behind our (laughs) our political system is. (laughs) Uh, I hate to say it, but we're definitely not keeping up with the times. At a time when Oprah Winfrey is featuring, you know, stay-at-home dads clubs, 250 of them across the U.S., I mean, dads have really taken on the role that everybody pushed them to take. And part of the reason we wanted them to take that role is because women wanted the same opportunities to go out in the workforce. But in family court and the decisions that come out of it, it really, really puts both parents uh, in a disadvantaged situation. 
Now, you were just saying that, uh, okay, so the common law part of the way the courts deal with the system has to do with precedent. And, uh, and because of history, of course, it's a precedent that women have, you know, generally nurtured the children. How does civil law work into it? Well, the civil law end of it is actually where that's where we consider that the, the rule would be beyond a reasonable doubt. But in civil law, the standard of proof is actually called a balance of, a balance of probabilities. Um, now, I'm not a lawyer, but I can certainly read, and that is basically saying that a judge will have two people present whatever case before him, he then has to think of any number of factors that would influence his decision and say, okay, based on what I know, do I think moms are better caregivers or dads are better caregivers? And unfortunately, it's a system where even though we call it no-fault divorce, one parent usually ends up on the losing end. Well, that's interesting because I, I, I'm sort of thinking, even if you're talking about probability, balance of probabilities, I've dealt with this myself, by the way. I think the Human Rights Commissions operate on some very similar principles. In fact, uh, there, there's a lot of reverse onus in terms of the civil authority that they have to prove your innocence rather than, or, or you know, to prove that you're not guilty. But uh, even if you're looking at probabilities, are, are, are there no... Um, uh, it seems to overlap precedents in the past that, that indicate to a judge what are reasonable things to even assume with regard to pro probabilities, balance of probabilities. And one of those main probabilities they're going to look at is the fact that traditionally women have been primary caregivers of the children. And But again, that doesn't answer any issues of who's the best parent or anything like that. Does it, well, it doesn't even talk, speak to it. parents are encouraged to go into a court and, you know, prove that they are a better parent, they're encouraged to go into court and annihilate the other parent. Um, it is a bit of a reverse onus situation where you're trying to prove you're innocent of it. You know, you know I've had um, various lawyers talk to me about family law over the years, and, and they certainly do not speak well of the system such as it is. Um, a friend of mine recently um, who had some knowledge of this was telling me that um, apparently with regard to uh, general, you know, family law support guidelines, initially there weren't really any. And a uh, long time ago, courts generally routinely gave a uh, woman, the custodial parent, more or less exactly what they requested without regard to other considerations. And then, uh, you know, they got new guidelines laid down around 1995, basically following what the courts were doing, doing before that. So even there, that, that's consistent with what you're saying, that, that they just put into the guidelines what they'd already been practicing. Isn't that kind of the way, what they did? They did, but they actually upped the amounts in a lot of situations. And yes, you know, he, when they when they were going to change those guidelines and put them in place, eighty percent of people were already satisfied with what they were receiving from the court. Exactly what you're saying. That's interesting because um, even here, uh, my source tells me that all they did was entrench the previous amounts. They were based on gross income, ignoring the impact of taxes and other deductions. Um, and up gui updated guidelines came in, um, supposedly based on a study by government economists of what people actually spent on activities for their kids, and these new guidelines have been a cause of the higher across-the-board costs, from what he tells me, which, which may account for what you just said. Oh, exactly. And, you know, you and I discussed a little bit about, can you imagine if they did this to an intact family? 
where they went into a family's home and said, well, we determine that the best interests of children are that they are all enrolled in hockey at an expense of $1,500 a month, and I'm sorry you have three children, and that might be a burden on you and your family, but that's what's best. Wow. And this is essentially these decisions that these judges are making on a daily basis. Well, it's interesting because the person who told me this, you know, he said uh, uh, basically the court seemed to award higher costs, ignoring increases in costs, uh, uh, in, you know, the impact on the payer, not the person getting the money. And he seems to think they're totally disconnected from reality, typically bureaucratic, my source said, and as though they're completely detached. And, and, and you know, as I hear more and more stories about the court system and what's going on, I have to ask, is, is the problem with the law? With the lawyers or with the judges, is there more, is it a balance of the three? Is it the politicians? Uh, it's actually, fault really lies with everybody. Um, when you read the law, it really has everything in place that it should have for judges to be able to determine equal parenting as a viable and best interest of the children. So, so you're saying, so then you're saying... It's got saying... a maximum contact rule. It's got a friendly parent rule in there that basically says... The children should be with the parent most likely to facilitate access and a relationship with the other parent. So in that case, you would say the law is not the biggest problem here then? Well, where it's a problem is that it's too open for interpretation at the judicial level. Right. Now we get back to the system again and the judges. And what, are they, what have they been doing with this law then? Well, really, what they've done is we do see an increase in joint custody decisions right now. But, again, we have a preconceived notion that joint custody would mean that both parents are sharing not only in decisions but day-to-day care of the children. It's really a misnomer because you can still have primary residence with one parent and they share decision-making responsibilities. So what we're trying to do is actually put in place in the law that the best interest of the child is served paramount by an ongoing and continuous relationship with both of their parents. Well, listen, that's going to be our very next subject, so we're going to take a break for two minutes right now. And on the other side of this bumper, what we'll be hearing is MP Maurice Vallecott saying exactly what you just said. And when we come back after this break, we'll carry on the conversation on Bill C-422. And I'm speaking with Chris Titus, who is speaking to us from Newcastle, Ontario. She's co-president of the Canadian Equal Parenting Council, and we'll be back right after this. So no, don't immature feeling. How am I immature? Well, emotionally, sexually, and intellectually. Yeah, but what other ways? Well, then maybe it's my fault. Maybe I just can't give. What do you mean you can't give? Then why don't you receive and I'll give? I'm not ready to receive. Well, then, then, then you give and I'll receive. Well, I can't receive. Oh. Well, you see, I'm a person who can only receive if another is giving. Well, I can't give. I'm sorry. But if we each receive, it might work. Well, I can't receive. My trouble is I'm receiving and receiving, and I'm only not able to give or to receive. But I would like to give if only you could receive. I can't receive. I don't know how I can help you. I really don't. See, if we both receive or both I give. I told you, I can't receive and I can't give. It's, it's not going to work out. It's no use to me. I'm sorry. Bye. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Don't worry about me, sweetheart. I'm like a cat. I'll always wind up on my feet. Oh, oh, oh.
Unfortunately, many Canadian families experience the breakup of a marriage, and when this happens, the results can be devastating for children. Children are caught in the middle, but should not be used as a weapon or alienated from one of the parents. Aside from proven abuse or neglect, Canadians want equal shared parenting to be the presumption in our courts when marriages break up because it is in the best interest of children and because it's part of an enlightened equality agenda. A recent poll I commissioned conducted by Nanos Research shows that 78% of Canadians support equal shared parenting with a high of 86% support in the province of Quebec. More women than men support equal shared parenting at 78.3% and among supporters of major political parties about about 78% of Conservatives support equal shared parenting, 75.8% of the NDP, 80.6% of Liberals supported equal shared parenting, and 83% of Bloc supporters endorsed equal shared parenting. An equal shared parenting private members bill was introduced in Parliament today, and I urge you to support it and expedite its passage through Parliament. And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where I am joined by Chris Titus, co-president of the Canadian Equal Parenting Council, and who, no no question, uh, supports Bill C-422. Would that be a safe assumption, Chris? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We've actually had the privilege of working very closely with some of the politicians on this issue. Now, if I understand the bill correctly, it's a private member's bill, that's right? That's correct. And... It calls for a presumption of equal parenting. So if passed, the bill would direct the courts in regard to divorce to make equal shared parenting the presumptive arrangement. So that's kind of the starting point then. In the best interest of the child, except, it says, in proven cases of abuse or neglect. Now, you know, I I read that and I say, okay, that sounds really good on the surface of things. But wouldn't that just shift the legal battle from uh, equal parenting to proving abuse and neglect on the part of one parent to another? Because some of these parents, you know, they sound like they're pretty vindictive people in some of their cases and would go to any length and use the legal system itself to get back at the spouse. Well, we are actually, I mean, we're looking at people who are potentially going to lose their child. So put it in that context and imagine what you would do in that circumstance. Certainly. What, part of what this bill is designed to do is, one, it's designed to not only enforce the 80% public perception that parents should already be equal to their children, it is to promote the parental responsibility of no more fighting. Because there's incentives embedded right now in the current system in regards to finances, which we already touched on a little bit, um, discussing child support, and autonomy of decision-making. And we want to break, you know, that mindset and get parents back to a level playing field where they understand that they are both, you know, absolutely essential in the upbringing of their children. And then what we do with the law is that we put in place Safeguards. There obviously has to be safeguards in place in any legislation dealing with where children will be living, where, you know, we have to look at whether there's either a history of abuse or neglect, or one of the very important things that Morris said during his speech Mm -hmm. is proven cases of neglect or abuse. Currently, in in a family law situation, You know, one person can make an allegation in family court whereby there may have never been an allegation or a criminal charge ever laid. Now, he's basically saying that, you know, these things have to go through the appropriate channels 
in criminal courts and start making them responsible uh, too so for making appropriate decisions where so family so he's saying is at stake. So he's saying he doesn't want that proven part to go through the same kind of system that they're using now, that combination of common and civil law and balance of probability oh, kind of thing. absolutely. It has to be decided by an appropriate court. And one of the other things that we're doing with the legislation is that this presumption will be um, used right at the very onset and when an interim order is made by the court. And that is, you know, right now um, a court may make an interim order for a family within like the first 60 days, but they may not have a court date to follow up on that for eight months, even a year down the road. So if the court makes an interim order for primary residence with one parent, they're not likely going to change that a year later after the child's had time to establish a new status quo. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that brings up an interesting question, and I hear it from, from people who might not agree with your point of view. Um, you know, they might argue, well, what about the kids? They might say, is there not, like, is, is there not an inherent instability in the kids being, say, moved back and forth routinely from a lo- one location to another? Ha ha ha, but you're talking to an equal parent, and I've done it for 10 years. <laughs> and no, there's not. I mean, if you look at the general lifestyle of a family these days, how many places are your kids shipped off to in a 24-hour period? Well, well how- what, what, what would happen then if, say where you have two parents living separately and each parent practices an entirely different style of either beha- behavior themselves or discipline with the child. Um, the child is being exposed to two different values. Now, I, I can see uh, it working again, perfect. I'm going to point you right back to mm-hmm. what they go through on a daily basis. They have rules at school. They have rules at daycare. They have rules that they have to follow when they're engaging in sports or extracurricular activities. This is something our children need to learn anyways. It's part of a healthy development process, and it can only benefit them in the long run, being able to actually adapt and assimilate, follow different sets of rules, understand why they're happening. When you're in your own home interacting with your wife, don't tell me if she tells you, you know, the kids aren't allowed to have macaroni two times this week while I'm away, you know, that you're not going to give them macaroni two times (laughs) that week if they want it. Yeah, there's some there's some real politics at work there, isn't there? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's uh, you know I'm speaking to you too as as a grandparent of a grandson who is being co-parented, and it's working out great for him because his parents did not uh, bring him into their dispute at all. And, Fantastic. And so, so I I know it works that. too. But again, you hear that argument, and I'm sure it doesn't work in all cases. You, you know, what, what, what how would a judge react if he's faced with dealing with issues, say, where one of the parents, or, or even worse, if both of them, say, had uh, uh, alcohol problems, drug, mental health, personality disorders, um, is that a whole other issue? Am I stepping outside of this No, scope? it is a whole other issue, but it's part and parcel. I mean, this legislation is not automatically going to fix everything on its own. The entire family law system is broken, and I don't care if you're a judge, a family law lawyer, a politician, or a person on the street, everybody knows it. So the part of doing it is fixing the legislation. Part is going to be having better judicial training. Part is going to ensure that there's appropriate education, support services, counseling, mediation available when these families break down. And always with the intent being, though, of keeping them as intact and as healthy as possible. 
And where in the legislation are there are there any specific quote quote unquote standards that are considered minimal, say for for the welfare of the child in terms of the child, uh, the child him or herself? Uh, I don't know what you mean by that. Are you well, saying that there has to be, or is there any legal standard as to what should be provided? Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, well, I mean, basically, it looks at all of the rights that children are supposed to have, um, i.e., you know, access and continuation of religion, access and continuation of education, culture, other familial relationships. Mm-hmm. These are all needs of children. Um, but also what it does is, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought there. <laughs> well, you know, we're coming close to the bottom of the hour, and I want to get a couple other questions in. But we were, we were you, you said earlier, um, dealing with the presumption of equal parenting, okay? If the court started on that premise, let's say, wouldn't that put a lot of lawyers out of business, <laughs> or would it not? Or would well, they have more clients? It's interesting that you say that, because actually one of the um, jurisdictions that we've watched very closely has been Australia, who recently put in shared parenting legislation. And I was reading a blog by a family law lawyer there who essentially debunked that entire myth and said regardless of whether you know, parents share the responsibility or not, there's still paperwork to be done, and there's more than enough work in other areas of family law. Because family law does not entirely encompass just custody and access on, on divorce or separation. No, it's, it's, well, that's a good question. What about alimony? How does that fit into this, or is that not even uh, part uh, of your group's concern, per se? We're not dealing with any, actually, of the economic issues mm-hmm. at this point in time. Um, there are some very good organizations looking at various models of spousal support and how that might work, but that's got to be part of the ongoing discussion in all of these uh, political agendas and moves. Now, I understand, um, in addition to your role with the uh, Canadian Equal Parenting Council, you're also involved with Fathers for Justice Canada, and, and you got yourself in a little trouble there, did you? <laughs> Who's been telling you story? <laughs> well, I don't know, but, um, you know, I find it interesting that both of my guests today should be uh, of the female gender, considering we're talking a lot about marriage and, and justice for men, and not all dads are deadbeats and that kind of thing. And, and I think a lot of people are shaking their heads and going, wow, I haven't heard that before. You know, it's essentially about um, gender equality, period. And in this particular circumstance, it's men that are on the short end of the stick. We do have a lot of non-custodial moms as well um, that very much empathize with what these fathers are going through and would come to organizations like this to have their voice heard. It's good for women because it also provides the opportunity for, you know, mental health, um, and continuing education, advancement of career. These are things that are going to benefit both parents and the kids. So you're going to be here in London this coming Tuesday, are you, at Wolf Performance Hall? Absolutely. And uh, in addition to your duties there, are you going to be giving a speech of your own or a presentation of your own, or what are... Oh, maybe they can spare me a few moments. <laughs> um, but really, I mean, that's an excellent queue of speakers that they have there, and I would recommend to anybody it would be an hour and a half well spent. Excellent. Well, again, that's $10. Uh, you can get a ticket for it. It's, it's at the um, Wolf Performance Hall, September 15th, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., and it's uh, 10 bucks at the door if you can get in there. And it uh, should be a very interesting event. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. 
Thanks for your time, Bob. Have fun with Barbara. I'm sure we will. Okay. You take care. Bye-bye. And right now we're going to be taking a break at the bottom of this hour, and we'll be back, hopefully, if everything works okay, with National Columnist, or National Post Columnist, rather, Barbara Kay. We'll be back right after these breaks. So I made some big decisions this week. I'm not having kids. Because <laughs> yeah, I just saw my sister's birthing video. <laughs> I decided you could use a birthing video for later on in life. The kids are acting up, just sit them down in front of it, run it backwards, get the hell out of them. <laughs> I don't want to have kids. Where are the parents in the crowd by applause? Parents? No children for me. Now, my parents liked having four kids because we're all grown up, we're out of the house. They actually got that empty nest syndrome. So they replaced us with cats. <laughs> yeah, with cats, my parents have found what they always want with kids. Right, cats clean themselves. They don't talk back. And in a fit of anger, they will survive a drop from the second story window. <laughs> I wish I could say I was surprised. It's my fault, really. He never had a father figure. Oh, that's not true, Mother. I had lots of father figures. I see you've met Captain Montgomery and Detective Beckett. And they have agreed to drop the charges if you agree to behave. And a lot of people have plenty of father figures. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. I'm Bob Metz, and I'm hoping I'm joined on the line by National Post columnist Barbara Kay. Barbara, are you there? Hi, Bob. How are you? Well, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm sorry I couldn't get your, um, uh, uh, my computer to give me the previous half hour of your talk. I would have liked that. I, I wasn't getting any sound, oh. unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, well, we'll, we'll cover, you, cover you on that, because I don't <laughs> think we really got into the area we're going to be talking to you about. We talked just basically about an overview of how family law actually works and some of the issues behind the concept of equal parenting mm-hmm. um, with Chris Titus, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, after we spoke yesterday, I went from, through some of your material on the subject of, uh, I guess, what is called uh, parental alienation syndrome. That's got nothing to do with aliens from outer space, even <laughs> though some of the stories sound like they come from there. It's true. <laughs> um, you know, I looked at this, and at first, you know what my first question was when I heard the word, or my first thought, rather, when I heard the word syndrome? I was thinking, uh, why do we need this word syndrome? You know, like courts, are, if they're getting more sympathetic to this thing why not call it what it is immature and irresponsible manipulation of your kids or something like that why can't that be regarded as evidence of some sort and uh, i see from one of your articles here that there is a big difference between a syndrome and what i'm calling it right now yes uh immature behavior can be influenced uh with threats of consequences and that's how we deal with children uh, mm-hmm. who are by nature <laughs> immature because you know so we we educate them we we explain you know you're this is counterproductive and if that doesn't work you you get a time out and if <laughs> you know right. that sort of thing you cannot uh, with with alienating parents they're uh, beyond uh, appeals to reason to morality to uh, any sense of justice or fairness they 
are obsessed with uh, not so much with uh, control of the children because they love them so much and want them. They, they are obsessed with punishment uh, of the other party and revenge. So it, it is It is a psychological syndrome. It's interesting because in your uh, article of April 1st, which I guess uh, you wrote after you attended a Canadian symposium for parental alienation syndrome on this subject, um, you pointed out that uh, parental alienation syndrome, which we'll refer to as PAS, mm-hmm. uh, goes far beyond the moderate alienation where, for example, a parent might, uh, where you say where a parent's mad at the other parent and it's, you know, it's non-sporadic, not sporadic, impulsive and reality-based. Like they might say something like, your mother, your, your mother is such a flake. Mm-hmm. But you said, un- not, unlike that, it's like a vicious, consciously sustained and, and this is what I underlined, materially baseless campaign, almost as if it's an unrelenting, uh, uh, you know, effort. Well, it's a kind of hatred that stems from uh, problems in the psyche of the person who's, who's, who's afflicted with, with it. It has nothing to do with, with real grievances, and uh, I would almost liken it to something like racism, you know, uh, you, you, you fixate on this idea that, that there's a certain group who's out to get you or, or uh, that is running the world, is, is responsible for all the world's evil. And it's the same kind of baseless um, uh, uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction uh, to this other person. They are the source of your misery. They, that person is the source of all your problems. Uh, so you transfer that to your children and say, well, I, I'm responsible for protecting my children from this horrible person. Now, what did you mean in your article when you, when you wrote that cr- mm-hmm. critics of PAS fret that the syndrome is being exploited by abusive parents as a ploy to enforce visitation or custody of justifiably resistant children? That is the problem, <clears throat> excuse me, that is the problem, I think, with, with all um, psychologically based uh, issues it, when 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 it comes to manipulation of uh, you know people wanting to see their children more or or people wanting to use the system to to get more for themselves it's it it becomes a very attractive I can see where it would be a very attractive temptation uh, to say if you don't allow me more time I'm going to tell the court uh, that you're a control freak and you're alienating the children. Um, so once you know there is this this uh, tool, so to speak, in place, it, it's almost like um, people who use domestic violence as uh, a threat. Saying, if you do that, I'll tell, I'll call the the police and say that you hit me. Um, and because they know that there are extreme sanctions, will immediately, uh, you know, leap into place to deal with what is recognized as uh, a very bad situation. Uh, So I can see where it's tempting. Look, people are weak. People want what they want. And they'll look at whatever tools are to hand. And and this is what always concerns me with regard to almost any law you might want to try to to use to prevent something. People will find some way around it. However, um, we're talking about... There seems to be a move to want to make this syndrome almost be considered child abuse. Is that correct, or am I misreading that? Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I, it is a form of child abuse. It's, it's, it's a terrible... Look, children, well, be- children want to love both their parents, sure. whether, whether they are ideal parents or less than ideal. Uh, it is, it is in, a, in a child's best interest that they be permitted, 
insofar as it is rational and possible, uh, to love their parents with all their faults and to love them equally. Once you tell a child uh, one of your parents is bad or even evil, I mean, mm-hmm. is what it amounts to, you're laying a terrible burden on that child. Now, uh, you know, I would agree with you entirely that, that it's a form of child abuse, but I noticed in, in um, your April 1st coverage that that may present a bit of a definitional problem in terms of distinguishing, distinguishing what we normally consider child abuse with this syndrome. And you, and, and you wrote here, and I found this very useful in, in making a distinction. Although, again, I think it is abuse, but you said um, abused children present a notably different affect from the alienated. An abused child is reluctant to discuss what has been done to him and must be coaxed to reveal his secret. Even then, he doesn't express hatred of the abusing parent as he longs for a healed relationship. And then you write, by contrast, a PAS child exhibits classic symptoms of brainwashing, acting in robotic alignment with the alienator. And removal of the child from the alienator for a period of time, even three months, ideally a year, can effectively begin reversal of the brainwashing effect. And, um, boy, that sounds a little bit different in the sense of of, uh, its effect on the child. Well, it's very different because uh, an abused child feels guilty, feels somehow that they have participated in their own abuse. It's, It's irrational, but a child doesn't know if they're hurting they're, they're very reluctant to say uh, it's all the fault of whichever parent it is that is hurting me. It, I must have done something wrong, or I deserve this, or because the, the parent is all-powerful, so they, they wouldn't have done it without a cause. But in the, in the uh, alienated child, the child feels no guilt whatsoever in dissociating from uh, the alienated parent because they have internalized the message that this other this parent is is evil and they've been told that by the parent that they're spending most of their time with um and then they start to be complicit with the other parent they start reading off uh oh you are bad because you do not give us money you do not love it like they start parroting all the grievances of the alienating parent this is very untypical of an abused child an abused child won't won't look you in the eye they won't talk about it they're embarrassed um, but these children are not. They'll go into court. They'll mouth, you know, what they have been programmed to say. So, mm-hmm. so uh, I well, think. Well, you see, that's my that's my, my my only issue here is with that word abuse. Not that I wouldn't apply it. I'm just wondering if we need to invent a new word so we can make maintain that distinction between. Um, I can see a, a person in authority perhaps coming across a child and misreading all the symbols or symptoms rather. Of, of perhaps what they might expect of an abused child rather than a child that you know, almost may seem enthusiastic about the hatred of their well, parents. You know, you know? Perha- yeah, <laughs> but I, that, that's the outward affect. Yeah. Um, and perhaps you're right, perhaps we do need a, a, another word, but I think it, it, is, it is an abuse to... Oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. To cause, <laughs> ...to cause hatred of a parent. And um, it, it is, it, it's actually uh, contravenes what I would call... Uh, an essential human right, and that is the human right of any child to have access to both parents and to have unimpeded love uh, uh, exchanged between himself or herself and the parent. And that, so, so to cut off the wish to love the parent, even 
is a form of abuse. Mm-hmm. Now, now you say the, the courts are happily trending towards an acknowledgement of the syndrome. I understand there was uh, what you referred to or what has been called, at least how you quoted it, a stunning and unusual family law decision about a Toronto father who was mm-hmm. awarded sole custody of his three da- daughters aged 9 to 14. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, this this uh, father had been petitioning uh, the courts for a very long time because it was a, a bad situation. Uh, he was persistent uh, beyond the usual um, uh, parameters. He had enough money to keep pursuing. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have that piece in front of me. No. I, I believe it took eight years, uh, is that correct, before this uh, decision was finally made by that time. A great deal of damage had been done to his children, but he he was uh, uh, he had tried to get the office of the child. You know, they're supposed to advocate for the child. Mm-hmm. They had been very slow on it. I mean, I, I was happy for the decision, but I was critical of the fact that it had taken so long, which highlights the fact that um, the 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 claims of alienated parents were not up until recently even being heard. Uh, as as a serious problem, that there was a serious problem, but in this case, uh, the the other parent had been so unusually open, <laughs> and mm. it was it was so obvious. But this was a I, I, I believe it was a first in Ontario at any rate. That's what I was going to say. Is this just going to be an exception to the rule, and the last one we'll ever hear of? I understand um, the, the person. No, there have been several cases. I, there, uh, oh. as I understand it, at the conference that I attended. A lawyer who spoke uh, spoke of five different cases in which I'm not sure if sole custody or if custody was reversed, but in which the syndrome was recognized as a significant factor in the judge's decision, and certainly access was changed, or you know more access was given to the other parent. Uh, so I believe it is slowly being accepted. Uh, there's an ideological component, of course, uh, to these things, because it is being fought, for example, very hard by certain feminist groups, because the alienating parents tend, uh, they can be either, they can be the male or the female, the father or the mother, but because children spend, tend to spend more time anyways, or be given into custody of mothers more often, uh, the statistically, you see more alienating mothers than fathers, and feminists feel, oh, this is one more power trip. Um, they're going to use this. Uh, men who want to control their ex-wives uh, and punish them will definitely use this in a uh, in a, in a very irresponsible way. Uh, so there's there's I don't know which way it's going to end up. I, my own feeling is that slowly but surely. Ordinary people are seeing that as a fairness issue, equal parenting makes sense. So once you've decided equal parenting makes sense, uh, the like alienated parents can't develop. Like the situation won't develop mm-hmm. so easily. One of the, the the only way alienation can develop is if one parent pretty well has sole control of the children because it takes a while to brainwash a child. So they can't be seeing the other, you know, parent. But if we have more equal parenting, the situation will cut it off more at the root, wouldn't you think? 
You know, I, I never, I, I always find that whenever we pass laws, we, we, find, we end up with unintended consequences yes. so frequently. Yes. And, um, you know, we can talk about that a little more. We're going to take a quick break for two minutes now, sure. carry this conversation on the other side, and perhaps broaden it into more of, of also of the role of the state in family matters sure. in, in a general sense. We'll be back in two minutes. <laughs> I'm out here, but in America, everyone's worried that TV's going to screw up their, you know, their kids. You know, when I was a child, I didn't need television to screw up my mind. That was my dad's job. <laughs> I remember when I was like, uh, I was like 12, I asked him what lesbians were. He said, ugly women who sleep together. <laughs> I said, well, what do you call pretty women that sleep together? He said, a photo opportunity. <laughs> You folks like impressions? Okay, I'm not an impressionist, but I've been rehearsing this one pretty good. I think I got it down tonight for my gala, so here it is. Get out of my house, you stupid jerk! Well, you never met my father. <laughs> trust me, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. That was him when I turned 30. Yeah. Daddy ain't the smartest guy, you know, He's, uh, he did way too many drugs in the 60s, lost most of his brain cells. You know, he's a tough guy too, really tough, macho guy. But he really moved me a couple of times in my life when he looked at me and said, yeah, that's my boy. He wasn't proud or anything, he just recognized me, but still, yeah. You know, and that's an example of some of the, the hits that dads are taking these days in the comedy <laughs> circuit, eh? Uh, uh, Barbara, what about what, what about the particular parent? If a particular parent is deserving of uh, of disdain, or I uh, wouldn't wouldn't use the word hatred, or at least of disso- disassociating oneself from the parent, um, do the courts? If we went to this equal parenting thing, would that be more difficult to do in the case of uh, um, perhaps one abusive parent being a bigger problem than the other, or would it not? Or do you not envisage that? You you, you can't change human nature. No. You can't change. Uh, individual pathology. Uh, look, people are people. Uh, there are stupid people, smart people, nice people, bad people. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's a utopian notion to think that any law, and I think you and I agree with on that, is is going to do much about human nature. All you can do is minimize. <laughs> I think all you can do is minimize the opportunities to do damage. Um, you know, I think that's almost the best way to look at look at the whole situation. I think that's the yeah. state's role is to uh, to encourage what it knows to be the best uh, the best uh, social situations in which uh, this, in which society flourishes statistically better. So it's the state's role to uh, uh, to encourage situations in which human society. Uh, is at its most wholesome, and it's it's also there to protect the vulnerable and the innocent from as much abuse as it can, and it can't protect from everything. And so, when you have an equal parenting situation as a default, what you're saying is, look, this this is going to be uh, this is going to be the rule for those who we consider are not doing enough damage for the state to step in. Do you see what I mean? Sure. Uh, if, it's, if the damage is more than is tolerable, the state will step in and say, okay, 
you've been smacking this kid around, you're not getting custody because you can't be trusted. You know, you're an abusive person or whatever. But I would say for 90% of people, um, uh, an equal parenting situation, it won't stop one parent saying, ah, your father is a lazy, no good, nothing. She can say it all she wants. But in the 40% of time that the child's with the father, they might find that, well, maybe he's a little bit lazy. He's not so lazy. You know, you know they'll deal with it. Sure, they'll just deal make, with it. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, I mean, I, I know couples in which one couple is more, one is more responsible than the other. But, you know, the other has qualities that are necessary as well. And, and, and that's the way life is. It's not cut and dried. And there's no all good, all bad. And, and, and until you get into the, you know, that 10% where abuse is an issue, you've got to let people live. You know, uh, I was looking at a line in your uh, January 30th uh, um, essay, and you said, you said, my files bulge with parental alienation stories in which this well-documented form of child abuse is ignored by judges. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I see what you're saying there is that this is well-documented, the judges are aware of it, and they've just basically ignored it. I find this amazing at a time when... Even the average citizen is being told to report child abuse if he finds, for example, child porn on his web, on his web mm-hmm. or on, on his computer and stuff like this. How is it that judges have been able to avoid what, is, what you're calling well-documented child well, abuse? Uh, for one thing... For uh, how one how thing, do they do that? For one thing, judges don't read a lot of documents because uh, it's too many documents. Or, or they will say, well, yeah, you're saying this, but then this other expert says that. Um, they they are very hesitant to get into areas in which they don't have a lot of expertise, and psychology is one of them. So when one claims, so, look, I have one case that is so egregious that it just boggles my imagination, and it's been written up in the news, so I can talk about it, mm-hmm. of a case where a mother uh, has what I would call Munchausen syndrome, where where um, she was uh, overfeeding her children to the point of obesity. Oh, yeah. uh, so she had infants that were actually uh, uh, threatened with disease because they were just so enormously inflated, and her toddlers could barely walk around. They were, you know, and the, the father was petitioning the court, pleading, and brought in a, an obesity expert who testified, and, and neither law, lawyer contested his views that the mother was actually, she wasn't taking them to doctors, she wasn't following uh, a regime. When they were with the father, he followed a plan, they lost weight, da, 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 da. And, and still, after the mother got them in the end, um, one actually developed cancer uh, as a result of her awful treatment of them the other is i mean she's ruining their lives this that's not the kind you know it's not the kind of example i would have expected in this case it's not well that's the, abuse isn't it but it, see, it is it could also happen with two parents doing that to one child sure and, it uh, could but but the judge said in this case and this just blew my mind he said the children say they are happier with the mother because she lets them eat what they want now are you going to let a seven-year-old child just be, the mother is feeding these kids donuts and hot dogs and all day long, and and is that a reason? Would you say that? I mean, they are. You know, they I, are in, 
I would say no to that. I would say no, they can't just eat what they want except because one. they don't know. Because they don't, they don't know. know what's in their own best interest in that case. But in this case, you have a judge faced with what I would call clearly child abuse. These children are diseased, and and their lives are ruined. But isn't that uh, one of the, the disadvantages that kids find themselves in too? Um, okay, yeah, sure. Children are are uninformed and uneducated, spe- specifically on scientific diet things like that. Um, do the courts look at at the child's point of view in in any of these cases? You know what I'm asking. In the yes, sense, yes, are of, they able to speak up for themselves? Yeah, and and do they even have the capacity to do so in the eyes of the court? Let us say, or or is there an age limit to that, or certain circumstances? You know, I'm I'm not ver- uh, versed enough in um, family law mm-hmm. to give you uh, uh, an age thing, or I, I, I know that... Just wondered if you were aware of in all your coverage, if you've seen... Oh, oh no, very often the, uh, the child's point of view is taken into account, but don't forget, an alienated child who doesn't know he's alienated will parrot the views of, of the alienating parent, so... Which, which again gives the court a reason to dismiss yes, the opinions of the children. And... Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, a, a, a judge who is already predisposed to think, say, that the mother mothers always know best for young children uh, will simply not listen to a young child that says, but I want my daddy, I want my... You know, they're, they're, sure. they'll just say, oh, well, the child doesn't know. And I think it's a very individual kind of thing. Um, Judges have a lot of latitude. This is what I have found when I've I've read transcripts from you know that fathers send me, uh, and I'll I'll just be looking through them and I'll thinking, my goodness, this this judge is sort of meandering, really taking his or her uh, own bias as kind of, you know. Uh, they just make up their minds on the spot. Yeah, you know, latitude is one thing, and going outside the parameters and boundary of that latitude is another. Um, you know, say if you were talking about something as simple as a dollar, as a monetary fine or something, you could say between ten bucks and fifty bucks or yeah. something, and, and not go over to a hundred. But if you translate that into human terms, it sounds like what the courts are doing is going beyond the previously established, uh, even the accepted guidelines. Is that the impression I'm getting? Well, I, I, they get a certain amount of training, and the training itself is, is somewhat biased, you know. And uh, judges are, are, are not judging law anymore. They're judging whose performance in court is, is the most convincing, which is another reason why uh, there should be a default that judges don't even get involved in and that lawyers don't get involved in. I, I think that the, the presumption should be parents will figure out what to do that's acceptable for their children if they have to and they don't have recourse. It should not be an ad- adversarial situation. You should not be fighting if, unless it's absolutely necessary, you should not be fighting in a courtroom over your children. Uh, these are, they belong to you. It's, you know, you shouldn't have to prove your right to access to what is your own flesh and blood. You know, you wouldn't say, uh, can I visit my leg or my arm? Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's not up to the state uh, as a sort of matter of, of a common, right. um, you know, this is the default position, that the state decides wh- where children live. Well, well, Barbara, believe it or not, our time is up. Oh, right at the top bad. of the hour, And I didn't even get to half of the stuff that we wanted to talk about. You well, I've been too, I, I've We'll have to have you back. Work. 
I'm sorry, I, I should have been a little more short-winded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You're talking about things I don't know too much about. Barbara, thank you very much for joining us it's today. And hopefully we'll have problem. you back, and, and we'll expand the conversation into, into broader areas in the future. Great. Thanks very much for joining us today, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to us today. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, be right, do right, act right, think right, and stay right. Take care. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright When I was in college, I, uh, I spent a semester in China as an exchange student and uh, when I was in China, I met a girl there and we fell madly in love and uh, there's a poem that I wrote for her. Lucky numbers 2, 7, 13, 31, 33. God bless you. Thank you, everyone.